Oh, friends. Here we are, another Robcast, and today we have with us, I'm going to use this word straight up, legendary Flanny. Welcome, Flanny. Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to interviewing you for the Robcast because of how many fantastic stories you've already told me and knowing that there are so many more. Right. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how to tell people why you mean so much to me and how we became friends and what you do. Right. Because how do I even begin to introduce Flanny? But first off, let me say, well, you'll tell the bow story at some point in this Robcast? I'll tell it if you like. I'll tell the bow story. Okay. At some yes. point, we're going to head towards the bow, st- bow story. Everybody. Bo Burnham. Anyway, let me back up and say this, everybody. You hear me talking. I've, I often will tell you that I'm doing a show at Largo. And I will talk about this magical club here in L.A., like music comedy sort of club. Flanny is the owner of Largo. So that just gives you like a baseline, this place that I speak of, this, this mythical realm that we speak of. <laughs> Flanny is the owner. Now, what's fascinating about it is he is like the, you're like the curator of a community mm-hmm. at some level. So you're from Ireland. Yes. You end up in L.A., End up in Los Angeles, yeah, in 92. And what did you come here to do? I came here to get away from the cold of Boston where I was studying. And I, I had been there for three years, and it was so cold. The year that the last year that I was there it was the coolest year in recorded history. I decided to take a road trip knowing the inner self was going, get out, get out of the inner self, out of Boston. And I decided to take a trip across across the country with the idea that I knew that I wanted to be in America. I knew it wasn't New York as much as I loved it at the time, that I was looking for somewhere warmer and somewhere that I could feel that I wanted to live in. And so I... Because you knew you didn't want to stay in, in yeah, Belfast. Yeah, I, I, I didn't, I definitely didn't want to stay. We, we moved, my family moved out of Belfast when I was, you know, my teens. Mm-hmm. And it was really politically and um, in every way really bad for for anyone living in Belfast at the time. There was a lot of violence. And um, when I was eight, there were 1,600 bombs detonated that year in this tiny town of Belfast. 1,600 bombs. Yeah. And we had family members killed. And it was um, and it was getting closer and closer and closer. My mother said, that's it. We're out. And so we moved to Southern Ireland. And we went to the west coast of Ireland, which William Butler Yeats made very famous, to a town called Sligo, where he's buried. And uh, I went to college there i went to um finish my high school there and then then i moved to dublin because i wanted to be closer to the arts and stuff like that and i finished my education there and everybody in 1989 88 89 in ireland there was no work so everyone was in college like 80 percent of all oh there's no job so just keep going to school keep going so can you do a master's can you do a phd (laughs) so anyone that graduated either went to america or australia or england that those that was it there was no jobs and so if you finished your college thing, so they were the most educated, unemployed people in the world, like unreal. So there was a definite thing in the last year of college of going, I need to plan to, to get out of here. I always knew I wanted to go to America from since I was a kid. I'd look at things, Steve McQueen in The Great Escape. I was, you know, I was like, he got out of there. I'll get out of here. Really? Yeah. And so I knew I wanted to go to America. So the, the long story short was I ended up in L.A. through a process of elimination. I drove across. I went to Memphis because I was very music-minded. I went to Memphis, Nashville, and New Orleans. Drove down those, and, and I never felt the vibe. Any, I loved them. And I was like, not yet, not yet. And then I took that horrible drive on the 10 from New Orleans to L.A. And I arrived, and a friend offered me a place to, to live in uh, in Venice, 
on uh, Abikini. He had a beautiful place, very similar to this. And he went out of town for three months and said, just stay there. And so I stayed there and it was 75 degrees and it was January and I went, this is it. The very first day I sat on the beach and I had a newspaper. We had newspapers at the time and I sat and it fluttered around the beach and I sat there and I went, this is it. And I knew, and it's never changed, never wavered. It's only strengthened since then. So when somebody says, Flanny, <laughs> where should I live? You would say, get in a car, yeah. start driving. Yes. And then at some point, if you get out and you like it, stay. Better still, <laughs> tying in with Rob Bell's book, here becomes obvious. Ah, uh, yeah. When you get there, you go, this is it. This is where I, and, and listen. It could be anywhere. It could be anywhere, but there's a very strong sense of this is where I want to be. No, so that was weather, but it was more than weather. It was more than 75 degrees. It was more the opportunity that I thought, having talked to a few people, because I knew nobody here, nobody, that I talked to a few people and, 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 and they said, no, this is typical. This is what it's like. And I went, okay, I'll do more with my life if the weather's like this. Um, so you arrived in L.A., and you didn't know anybody because now I, I feel like you know everybody. Right. What, how did you get into – so did you very, buy Largo <clears throat> yes, at some point? Yes, I did. But it started in 1992. A friend introduced me to a guy who wanted to open a bar who is Irish. And I knew just the, the kind of six degrees thing. But I went to college with his brother in Dublin. And he said, if you're ever out in L.A., and I never thought of this, and I went to Boston, never thought I'm going to be in L.A. And then one day I was sitting there and I went, you know, I actually do know somebody here. So I called up this guy, and his wife was working at a bar called Molly Malone's on Fairfax Avenue. Yeah, right here. Right, right here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the manager of that place, another Irish guy, was looking to stop managing Molly Malone's and open his own venue, his own bar, sorry. And so he was looking around, and he just happened to mention to me, he says, you know about music, right? And I said, how do you know? And he goes, well, he told me that you book stuff and that you're, you're, you're musical and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, I'm looking at this place, and it has a strong musical presence, but I don't know anything about it. Would you mind coming? And this is like literally a few weeks in L.A. And I went, okay, where is it? And he goes, it's up the street on Fairfax. And I went, okay. So we met at Cantor's Delicatessen for a coffee, and then we went across, and we saw this place, which was called Cafe Largo. And it was a small, very much a dinner theater thing that a French guy was running and he was doing music. And the big part of the license was the music. That's why people were coming. So the rest was how do we cater to the people that are coming for music? So food, drinks. He was very much into that. And then he suddenly, we walked in and um, we looked around the place and he had a conversation with the French guy. And the French guy says, it's been on the market for a while. I will literally give you, just name a price. I'm out of here. And so he negotiated a price. <clears throat> and then it took a while with his licenses and stuff. So um, he started this business and asked me to come in and book the music. And I had saved a bit of money. And I said, I'll buy into it. I'll, I'll invest in you. Because he did need a bit of money. I'll invest. So make me a partner and I'll do that. So I did that. And it became, the, from, from the day I opened, there was a few people that were playing there that were pivotal. So there was a guy called Grant Lee Phillips. There was um, another singer called E who became the Eels. There was a lot of people around the fringe that were just starting up. And I, it was time and place. Within months, I started the comedy thing that became legendary. Yeah. Um, but That's Jack Black, mm -hmm, Will Ferrell. Yeah. All, well, a lot of the Groundlings people, but actually more, more to the, the thing that draw, drew them in was stand-up comedians. So David Cross, Mitch Hedberg, um, Sarah Silverman, uh, all, all these... Zach Galifianakis, all these people, Greg Proops, um, Paul F. Tompkins, all these stand-ups that, that are doing podcasts and are famous now were all starting around that time. And did you 
Not in 92, by the way. Did so, you know when you would hear somebody do stand-up, this person is funny? Yes. So I didn't come from a comedy background. And obviously, I love comedy. And one of the biggest comedians in Britain is a guy called Billy Connolly, who was from Scotland. Sure. And he was very blue-collar, but very funny and still very funny. And I always loved that, but I never thought I was going to do anything with comedy. <clears throat> I did primarily with singer-songwriters. So with Elliot Smith and Colin Hay and Amy Mann and John Bryan. Colin Hay, Men at Work. Mm-hmm. Oh, my By first the way, cassette ever. One of the very first people ever to play there. He just happened to be playing up the street, and I just said, I've got a place. And we've been friends ever since. But he's the one exception because he's very funny. Amy Mann and Elliot Smith were not funny. And they would sing these songs about the fact that somebody's gone and their heart is broken. And after about four or five months of that, I went, I need some fucking comedy. This is really heavy. And so... Amy Mann was... Uh, she was... Just keep it down now. Yes, exactly. Voices, Voices carry. carry. But then right was after... That a band? Was that Amy Mann or was that a band? Or no, her band was called Till Tuesday. Till Tuesday, were, sure, They were sure. from Boston. And her, the producer of Amy Mann's solo, first solo record is John Bryan. And I got to meet Amy through him because they were out mixing the record and they were looking for a place to hang out. And so they came and a friend of mine from Boston says, you should meet John. And John became the thing that built Largo because he's I such a brilliant musician Yeah. that people would be like, I'm coming to see this guy. John Bryan, B-R-I-O-N, folks. Mm -hmm. I saw him at Largo play the piano. Mm -hmm. And... I don't even, I'd never seen somebody do well, that to a piano. John, exactly. John went from I, producing Amy Mann in very quick succession to producing Rufus Wainwright's first record, Fiona Apple's records, doing the music for films such as Paul Thomas Anderson's movies and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind with Jim Carrey. Um, and, 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 and then producing Kanye West's record, uh, Late Registration, and then has continued to just grow and grow and do these amazing movies and, and, and the work that he does himself. But... He was the nest that people felt very secure to drop in and, and, and new things would come out of it. And he played every Friday night. And then on every Monday night, we had this comedy show, which was called the Largo Comedy Show. And it drew in every comedian that you can name. You name a comedian that George Carlin dropped by, Robin Williams dropped by, either to perform or hang out well, in the community. So Robin Williams would show up. Would he, he never show up un unannounced? Uh, no. And sorry, not to drop big names, but they were the biggest names in comedy, would come to see what is going on there. Oh, really? Yeah. Eddie Izzard and people would perform. Like oh, big, dear. big comedian. Like oh. the, he would perform. Let me pause in honor of my favorite comedian ever, Eddie Izzard. Yeah. And so, and Eddie, and then Eddie decided, like you, after many years of being in the one place, decided to move to Los Angeles and, and came to me one day, which is really funny because I have a program of three months in advance I booked. And he came to me and he said, Funny, my boy, I, I want to start doing a show. Uh, can, can we do tomorrow night? And I want to do 21 nights. And I said, Eddie, this, this machine is like, no, I'm not going to cancel people. No, 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 I don't want you to cancel. I'll come in at 6 o'clock, darling. And I was like, no, 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 no. We're setting up. It's a restaurant. So I recommended this place that was a defunct theater that nothing seemed to be going on. And it was called the Coronet Theater. And I'd been there to see a play. And the place was really run down. And I said, but listen, all you need is two speakers and a microphone. Start doing that on a regular basis. And he did. And I went to see him uh, a couple of times and we were good friends. And I, and I sat there at this Cornet Theater and I had been looking to move because immediately the success of Largo was overwhelming. It was not for me, but for people who couldn't get tickets to come in. It was just small. It was 130 people. So I needed to get a bigger place, but I didn't want to go too big, not out of any insecurity. I just wanted it to be an in intimate thing. And this theater is 270 seats. And I was like, this is it. And it took six years to get it. 
Six years. Six years. It took me six years to, you know, figure out how I'm going to get, not not out of any, any lack of trying for me. It was constant waiting for the move, the owner to go, okay, you can come in and take the lease. Okay. Americans listening to this mm-hmm. would be like, wait, if you're filling up 130 seats, then you would go find a 1,000-seat venue. Right. You were like, we're filling 130 seats, but this seat is 270. Yes. You, which is some of the larger questions I have for you, why did you keep it small? Because I wanted to retain two things. I wanted to be able to freely move with the artist without any connection to the business people, to development deals, to anything else. It's fine if they had that, but I wanted the, the artist to try that this was a place, a safe place, that they could come and try out new material. Or the material that they have, they want to ch- slightly change it. So most comedians that are on the road, like the great Pete Holmes' happy birthday, <laughs> have a tendency, which is why Rob and I, or how Rob and I met, um, have, have, when they go out on the road, these people want to hear the greatest hits. Anything they know about, you better do that. I want to create a space for them to have a platform to develop the stuff that they do to take out on the road. See, that's, I always, because that's the thing, is you intentionally, well, I mean, I, let's, let's move over to a different area. Uh-huh. Religion. Right. Uh, there's the party line. Right. There's the thing that needs to be said to keep the thing floating. Mm-hmm. Politics. There's mm-hmm. the thing the candidate needs to say. Right. There's the thing that keeps everybody's salaries paid, that keeps everybody on message. Right. But then there's actually what the politician really thinks in real life. Right. Then there's actually what the religious leader really thinks. That's right. What they're really wrestling with or thinking about or what I knew experience they've had that they're sort of working through. Right. You, with Largo, are like intentionally going to create a space where somebody doesn't they can be whoever they are in this moment, not whoever they are out there in That's capital right. letters. That's right. And also, the thing about Largo is, and it sounds very cocky, but it's just the fact, is I am, <laughs> I'm a one-man band. And I'm also, yes. not that I endorse any politicians, but the reason that people are tapping into the strength, the, the building strength of Bernie Sanders is they can see that he's not bought by people. He's not owned by any influence. So there's no studio in Los Angeles that's saying get our guys in there. And I actually rebel against that when they say, oh, you should put this guy. No, I shouldn't. I, so, And it all comes through recommendations of other friends of mine. So Pete Holmes goes, my friend Rob Bell. And that's how that happens. Uh, or I will get a lot of submissions and I, will, I, I listen and look at everything out of respect to anyone that's doing art. I will look at anything. But then there are a few things that I will go to Henry Rollins and go, Henry, this is where you need to be. I know you hit doing Los Angeles. I know you hit. Richard Lewis, the le- legendary comedian, won't play Los Angeles. Well, he's playing in Largo in November, but he doesn't want to know who's in the audience. Same thing with Larry David, who's performing Friday night. Larry's working out new stuff. He doesn't want to be on YouTube. He Larry David, want... who created Seinfeld with Seinfeld. Yes, and Curb Your enthusiasm. enthusiasm. And is playing Bernie Sanders on Saturday Night Live right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Doesn't do live stuff. <clears throat> Hadn't done live stuff in many, many years. And contacted me and says, I want to do stand-up with the idea of maybe going on tour. And I said, okay. And so I've slotted him into shows where he's unannounced and he'll come and he'll do a half hour, which is, he's doing this Friday. And, but the idea is, so back to the intimacy, I can control the environment in terms of filming, people on their cell phones, people talking. There's no distraction in that room. There's no bar in the room. Because that's the thing, by the way, if you come to Largo before the show, Mm -hmm. Michael or you or somebody says, no cell phones, 
no recording. Right. It's the opposite of what everybody else is doing, which is trying to get it out. You're right. like, no. This and is also, for the people in the room. That's right. And then also, like, people last night at Rob Bell and Pete Holmes' show know that they're going to be able to listen to this because a, it's recorded. I have a Pete Holmes, Rob Bell show hangover right now, by the yes, way. Yes, we do both. <laughs> I woke up like, what happened? It was very good. Um, but, but also, Michael, which I've asked him started to do recently, is to tell people, I know your instinct is to whip out your phone and capture this. We are taking photographs, which are posted from last night. Yes. On Instagram. And you can, snap, you can, you can share them. You can keep them, and you have an image of last night of better photographs than you could ever take of Rob Bell and Pete Holmes on stage. And then there's the document through the podcast of that show. You know, So there's a great sense of relaxation with people coming in and going there. I don't have to sit beside somebody. Literally, I was at a show recently, and somebody had an iPad out and was filming in front of me. And it looked where like was I was... It? Where were you at? It was at a place called the John Anson Ford Theater. And it was a performer called Richard Thompson, who's an amazing guitar player. Yeah. And the woman in front well, somebody of me... Somebody had an iPad yes. holding it up. And I went to the usher and I said, Are you, can you fucking stop this? I mean... <laughs> and, and, and by the way, it's dark. And so the iPad is glowing and everyone yeah. behind is... Good. And so they said, we can't do anything because our, our policy is no flash photography. Oh, my word. From our policy from 1973. Yes. And so I so, said to the lady, you're being rude. Put that thing away before I shove it up your ass. And, so, <laughs> and she did. <laughs> and then everyone clapped behind me. I, didn't, I wasn't looking for... So, because I think, I think what... Because when I first came to Largo to hear Pete, and mm-hmm. I was like, wait, somebody... There's, a, there's some thought. This is all intentional. Right. And the reason why this place has this incredible reputation it's so people use the word magical Mm -hmm. you had this awareness that everybody is at an experience but they are filming the experience so they're not they're here but not here and you were like no this place will be a place where if you're here you're actually here right and you're not tweeting you are just in the moment and the person on stage is doing something that is not what they would normally be doing somewhere else that's right and getting back to a formative thing which was like how did largo start i had a partner I don't have a partner anymore. And our major disagreement was I didn't concur that the customer is always right. The performer is always right. So you respect the performer. You make the performer happy in their environment. They're going to give the best show. The audience will recognize that. And they don't have to come out and go, I love Largo. This is where I do my... A lot of them do. But the audience, knowing that the responsibility is taken from them to have to have a device and sit there for 90 minutes, they start to really like that. And it's not an old-timey feeling. It's just we're in. We're in this moment. We can remember this moment. We're never going to look at that fucking dodgy photograph on a cell phone anyway. So, you, so, so the, And then it's a more attentive audience and a more relaxed audience. You know? So the, the field work was done of literally walking up to somebody and giving them $30, $32 cash and going, this is the price of the ticket, and that's your ticket charge. You're out. Goodbye. We warned you. You're talking. You're drunk. You're whatever you are. It very rarely happens now. But but you've done that. We have done that. I, I will just give me the money, and I will go up after the usher or Michael will say to somebody, you have to be quiet or you have to stop recording, you know, and then we'll give the money. I haven't done it in so eight years. This year will be the at the Coronet Theatre. We haven't done it in probably seven years. But there was a lot of reinforcing of, no, 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 you have to. And he says, if you want to talk, go somewhere else. If you want to record, go somewhere else. If you want to use your device, smoke from it, talk to it, whatever you have to do, go somewhere else. And that's the idea. And so it's, it's for, people laugh because they think, oh, that's funny that he still has to say that. 
but he does because people bring friends who have never been there. And like last night, there was a, quite a percentage of people who had never been to the venue. Yeah. And so we have to remember that at all times, even if there's nine people that have never been out of 270 that, you know. And then uh, how do you... So how much of your energy is spent with as Largo all that you, do, you but then I keep bumping into people who are like oh Flanny helped me organize this right or uh, Flanny was involved in this yeah I do I do and and you know it's um it's an exclusive on your podcast that Largo <laughs> <coughs> the reason I so it became so I dropped the cafe from Largo on Fairfax Avenue I said this is not a cafe this is a venue and I stuck my chest out and said this is the spot. And it wasn't a Kanye West, you know, kind of like, here I am, blah, 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 blah. Thank God. It was just, I was so secure with the venue and, and that the talent that were performing there, I was like, this is great. We need a bigger place. So now I'm at the point that, so there was, this is the 20th anniversary coming up in September of me being, lar doing Largo by myself. And um, there's an, the, the exclusive aspect of it. I called it Largo at the Coronet with the intent of it's going to be Largo at the Town Hall, New York. Or go at the Opera House in, in Seattle or wherever it happens to be. So we're going to start branching out in terms of doing more stuff. But I have been involved with other people with projects and helping, you know, with casting of certain people. Um, and and through Largo, so people will will call me and go, "Listen, I don't want to talk to this guy's agent. This project's special. How do I?" And so I go, "Okay, great. That's easy. I can do that. I can help you facilitate that." So there's been a great sense of that stuff too. And what brings you the most joy? Because you were there last night, meeting My people, hugging children. people. Talk about your kids. No, no, no. My, what, what bring, professionally, what brings me the most joy is to sit backstage with no other distractions and see how excited you were last night, <laughs> how excited Pete was last night, and me throwing a spanner in the works and going, let the song play a bit so that I could just see you guys. But also... <laughs> oh, the walk-on song. Yes. Just so we had a Ray Charles big band thing blaring... And most people would come out on the opening thing. And I separately said to you and Pete, let it play for a little bit. And then I sat back and I watched the two of you boys just jump up and down going, we're going to get the play ball. We don't have to go to school. <laughs> and that was the energy. And that brings me the most excitement. And then also then to run from the backstage to go and sit in the back row or actually like last night I did, I went up to the sound booth, which is, you know, in the back row area up above the back row. And just watch it and just see everybody tuned into the same thing for 95 minutes or whatever it was, you know. Okay, when I look at the Largo list, when I see Sarah Silverman, mm -hmm. Zach Galifianakis, Judd Apatow, Spinal Tap, mm -hmm. I, you, when you and talked to me first about doing a show and you said to Kristen, like, I want you to become part of the family. Yes. There aren't, whatever it is that I do, Yeah. why, I've always wanted to ask you this, why in the world... Mm -hmm based on all of the history you have at Largo, that you would invite me to do my thing. So my favorite night of the year is New Year's Eve. I don't drink. I'm not a non-drinker. I drink a glass of wine every so often because I take it off and we close two nights of the year every year, no matter what, St. Patrick's Night and New Year's Eve, and we're closed for mental health reasons. I don't want to deal with the horse shit that goes on <laughs> with people. And I've been offered a lot of money. Do New Year's Eve party. I sit and... It was my decision to get married. It was my decision to have a baby. It was my decision. Every year I take stock of where I'm at. And then lower in the list is the professional aspect where I go, what does Largo need? What, what has Largo done? And then I, the, the business side of it is cross-pollination. People that will come to see Rob Bell will come to see Pete Holmes and vice versa. And they'll also go, Henry Rollins? 
oh, holy shit, I heard Larry David's here. Let's find out when he's here. And so this cross-pollination of different communities coming to see the same through a process of like, oh, Rob, I, I love Rob. And then Rob said, this place is great. We checked out the schedule. A lot of people have never gone on the Largo calendar and gone, Sarah Silverman, Tig Notaro, Jackson Brown, th which is all last week. But they come to your show and they go, maybe we should. That was a relaxing night. That was fun. Let's do that again. And so my th when you came into the picture, I went, Okay, let me see. Let me think about this. And so then I immediately, having met you was a big thing. So the, the biggest thing is a connection in terms of this person would be a joy to work with. I made a decision seven years ago that no matter how talented people are, I'm not working with them unless I like them. And I've eliminated a few people. And so a big part of it is I can't wait to see you. I can't wait to see you guys. Oh, yeah. Kristen Bell just entered. Kristen just walked house. in. Just Always hobbled in. <laughs> she looks like she's going to... Oh, that's, is that for the cleaning of the... Yeah. Thank you. A little spilled coffee in the back house. We're good. Yes. And Kristen has a... Do it's a dodgy ankle. A dodgy ankle is getting better. Uh -huh. Kristen sprained her ankle. Has some crutches. Did you bring out cleaner with crutches? Yeah. Do you really do it all? Multitasker. Yes. I don't know so where we good. were. Oh, no. So, so bringing you into the to the the family of sort of sorts, I every so often will take stock of what ethnicity do we have? What do we have enough women represented? Do we have enough spoken word represented? So my primary thing is, it was noted initially Largo for the great music. So, you know, Elliot Smith and Colin Hay and Amy Mann and Fiona Apple all sprung out of this place and John Bryan sprung out of this place. And immediately the business started going, oh, this guy knows songwriters. We're signing songwriters. Let's go. And, and so there was a big influx of that. And I would, I would hold back. I would actually put shows on sale to, the, to uh, try and find the fans as fast as possible so that the tickets would buy up and it, it would be harder for other people to, to get in. <laughs> you know, but uh, but out of respect, out of like Amy Mann would be like, I want to play to my fans. I don't want to play to business people. It's, the show's not ready yet. Mm -hmm. So that happened. And then the comedy came in because the songwriters were so damn serious. So the songwriting came in and then there was more of a, okay, they're actually making fun of the songwriters and the songwriters like it. That's great. And so we cross-pollinated off having Patton Oswalt open for Amy Mann or Paul F. Tompkins opening for Colin Hay. And then it became, okay. And then Steve Martin, who performs at Largo, told me, years ago that that's what he did in the 70s he went out on tour gary shandling went out on tour for three weeks opening for donna summer in the 70s <laughs> yeah and gary told me that recently and i was just like wait you opened for a disco act and he was like nobody wanted me there they were horrified that i was there and the the sets would get shorter and then suddenly one night he hit philadelphia and people were like oh we'll give this guy with the hair a chance and that's what he told me. And then it just and then he was like, the challenge of it was fantastic. And he just needed him to put in time on stage to be more. So, you know, that happened. And then so with you, I've done a lot of series between Seamus Heaney, who is my poetic idol that I love, and writers like George Saunders. I reach out to people and go, we need this. We need a literary sense. We need Rob Bell to question. We Rob, Rob Bell to entertain. And it's all there. And so there's an aspect of what you're doing, which you're hugely... You know, you come from a musical background, but you understand comedy, you understand everything, and so your show brings all that together in a way. So it's, it's a very obvious choice without being obvious, you know. That's, and that's what I was thinking for people who are listening. Everything you've been saying is both obvious and not obvious. Mm -hmm. 
And so many people... And trial and error as well, you know. Right. Like, so many people, what should I do with my life? What should I... I'm living in in Nebraska. I'm living in Florida. I'm living in England. I'm living in... How do I make a life? How do I make a life? But what I pick up from you and for so many people is you just keep trying things. Right. Some things work. Some things don't. You have these key moments when your own instincts tell you, do this. Mm -hmm. It might not make the most money. We could get a much bigger venue and make more, but no, it's not about money. It's not about prestige. It's about some inner sense of this is a thing that I could do that I could hold my head high. Right. Um, There's a business sense to, uh, in terms of what I'm doing and what you're doing too, certainly there's a business acumen thing that I would advise anyone that's a musician or a performer or, you know, learn the business aspect of it. Yeah, you know, if you're a guitar player, learn open tunings, learn the yeah. care of your guitar, learn anything that anyone else is doing, magpie it, steel bits here and there. But with biz- with getting into the performative thing, learn the business of it. Like, yeah. you want to run a theater? Okay, well, your rent, your base rent is going to be twenty six thousand dollars on two hundred and seventy seats. You're going to need insurance. You're not going to need a staff. So before you know it, your expenses are fifty grand a month. Do you have enough shows to sustain that? Whoa. Yeah, that's Largo. Yeah, so all... And to me, every artist, every person creating something, from an accountant to a mom creating whatever, if if there isn't undergirded Mm -hmm. by solid structure, like do the numbers line up, then you can't be free. But then also having the confidence of knowing that when I switched venues, it was 2008. What happened in 2008? Yeah, crash. Accountants were like, stay where you are, son. Do not take any risks. And the same fella that said, Los Angeles is here, is for, this is for me, said, no, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be successful. Don't worry. But also at that point, I'd been doing it for 13 years. And I knew that in the first few months, which is the very first show was Amy Mann, the second show was Tenacious D. The second, the third show was, I mean, I just stocked it for the first few months of all the biggest names. Will Ferrell did a thing for five nights. You know, there was a lot of... But Will Ferrell's great. Yeah. As and a he, person. He, huh? He's a fantastic person. Like, and, and from the moment I met him, maybe 18 to 20 years ago to now, he hasn't changed. He's a lovely, lovely man. And also very supportive and will say to me, hey, put me in. Do something. You know, he's very busy. He does like three movies a year. Um, but there are people like that. And so... The, the thing, if you're living in Nebraska and if you're living in, and Pete quoted somebody last night, you can get out of there. But if you want to do what, what this is. You can do it. Where you can you do are. it. You can do it anywhere. There's always a community and you just have to tap into that and see how, you know. But the fiscal thing is an important thing that people underestimate. Yeah. But there are these key moments when you made counterintuitive moves to create a community. Mm-hmm. That I think is really interesting for anybody anywhere who wants to be a part of a community. Right. Um, and any- I said that to Kristen like just a while ago, that I'm very much, as, as much as I'm hanging out with you and Valerie and, and we're backstage after the show, as soon as I come out, I immediately see where are we at? And then I'll ask Michael, did the people enjoy it? I, I mean, I, can, I didn't have to ask last night. But I, I've, I'll eavesdrop on people going, oh my God, this place... And that thing and this, and, and it all makes me feel like, okay, that's the right path. I don't need that endorsement, but it's reading the temperature of the people that come there. Because there's a certain amount of schooling, like you say, we, as soon as they get there, they're, you know, here's the bar, here's the lobby, here's do whatever. And then as soon as they're sitting in their seats, it's like, this is what you can't do for the next 19 yeah. minutes. 
But what and, you can do pays off. Yeah, and I, I, I think about all the people I interact with who are starting something or trying mm-hmm. to do something fresh in the world, whatever it is, a mom's group, a right. co-op, a garden. Yeah. The, the clearer you are on boundaries, mm-hmm. this is what's permissible, this is what's not. Right. That's not being authoritarian or heavy-handed. That's being healthy and clear. Right. And that people respect boundaries. Right. Even in a modern age where everybody's like, no one tells me what to do, uh, this is what you're going to do. Okay. If they are sense there's a good heart behind it, right? figure out what your thing is and then stay true to it and then be very clear about those boundaries. And that's right. And it doesn't transplant from, like Chris and I were talking about um, the idea of feeling disappointed because your child is sick. So if Largo, if a show doesn't work, it doesn't work. If your child gets an ear infection, it's devastating. But through a process of having one child and another child and then seeing that child develop, you go, oh, this is meant to happen. I'm just meant to recognize it and make sure that it, it goes away. And so, and with the garden, the gophers, you know, who told me there was going to be gophers, <laughs> right? So, so but there, there are all these challenges. But the thing with my business in particular and with yours is seeing a couple of year plan, not a five-year plan, but living in, t- in the day and living every day, but going, okay, so where are we next year? Mm-hmm. You know, and so I'm already thinking next year, Largo at the, may not be at the Cornet Theater. Other cities? No, in Los Angeles, there's another oh. venue I'm looking at. So, you heard it here, folks? Yeah. Well. And I've had my eye on this other venue for a couple of years, and I'm waiting for the right moment. And I would never leave the Cornet Theater unless I had something that was twice as good. So, you know, so that's the, that's the idea. And I'm not looking to constantly expand, but I went from 130 seats to 270 seats, and now it needs to be 500 seats. And I can still do the intimacy with 500 seats because the place I'm looking at has 300 seats downstairs, which is pretty much the same as Largo, and 185 seats in the balcony. And so you can make it work within that, you know. So, and, but the idea of that is I don't want to lose the people that are popular. So Sarah Silverman, Tignatoro, John Mulaney, who's unbelievable. These shows we don't advertise. People have to find them, and they sell out right away. So in order for that to grow, it needs to be in a bigger space. So that the yeah. same thing happens, but those artists feel like, oh, wow, okay, we're doing better? So there's always a thing with artists that they want to know that things are moving mm. and stuff. And a venue needs to have that as well. A venue needs to have a thing where the staff go, oh, wow, this is nicer. And the, because it's nicer, it's easier. You know. Wow. But you would keep the current one? Hmm. Maybe not. Okay. I don't know. We're, 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 I'm looking at it right now. And Folks, this is like breaking news. This is the exclusive, this is, yeah. This is breaking news to me. And then what I want to do with the other place is, because it's bigger, I can work less, I can open less nights. So at the moment, we're open. As If you look at the, ske- the schedule, we're open 30 nights, uh, 28 nights, sometimes with double shows a night, returning the house. I want to do 15 shows a month. And I'm in the middle of this collection of, as you asked what I do outside. So I have this collection of short stories I think I told you about that I'm writing. And it's just, I'm getting so busy that it's, you know, detouring. And then I did the Marty Feldman book, which was so much work last year that I went, I have to figure out a a time to to do what what I need to do. So let me say to people, because I'm reading the book right now and it's fascinating. Yeah. There, this legendary British comedian, mm-hmm. Marty Feldman, who, who like uh, Monty Python. Right. He put Monty Python pretty much. He didn't put them together, but he introduced a lot of them to each other and then had a platform of a show that he brought individual members in as a writing team. And then they all went, oh, we should yeah. do something. And then became Monty so this, Python. 
uh, amazing British sort of hero of comedy. Right. You knew his widow. His widow came to Largo the first, um, the first three months that we were open. And so, but this is back when I had a partner in 92. And I, she came in December 2nd and I didn't know. She, somebody said, this is Loretta Feldman. And I said, oh, how are you doing? And she was very, very, I mean, beautiful with long flowing things and thick British accent. And um, I said, Feldman, like Marty Feldman? And she goes, yes. And I said, oh, nice to meet you. And she goes, are you Flanagan as in Flanagan Flanagan? And I went, yes. And she goes, it's nice to meet you too, darling. Wait, did you say as in Marty Feldman meaning? I didn't know she had any Feldman, relation. Feldman. Like, that's a famous Feldman name, not, oh, the, my word, this is the widow of Marty Feldman. But the gay man that introduced me said, this is my friend Loretta Feldman's. And I said, did you say Feldman as in Feldman, Marty Feldman, or is it Feldman? Sorry, I didn't count. And she said, oh. And then so she enjoyed the show. And then afterwards, and come up, and she goes, did you know that Marty Feldman was my husband? And I went, oh, no, I, I'm sorry. Oh, I had no word. idea. And so then we started a friendship. And I didn't know until afterwards that was the 10th anniversary of Marty's death. She was at home, depressed. And two gay friends said, there's a new nightclub, and we're taking you out. And really? we became really great friends. And so that was the 10th anniversary of it. He died, died in 1982. We were open in 92. And um, she passed away <clears throat> in 2011. Where are we now? Yes, five years ago. And we were very, very good friends. And she had told me that Marty, who, by the way, was Igor from Young, Young Frankenstein. He was in a lot of, you know, um, he was a really great writer in England and continued to write and was working on his autobiography went off to make a movie called Yellowbeard in Mexico and died of a massive heart attack at 48. And she knew that he had written a book or was in the process of writing a book, but was so devastated by his loss, she couldn't deal with it. There were like boxes, boxes in an everywhere. attic or something, yeah. right? His hump from Young Frankenstein was up there. His scripts, everything is up there. She kept everything but had a housekeeper just put it all in the attic so that she would never have to deal with it and lived in the house. And um, when she was, but way before she was ill, she said to me, listen, if I, you know, when I die, I want you to have this house. And, I want, and I'm like, I don't need your house. It's falling down, jokingly. But then she'd say to me, well, in particular, there's something up in the attic that is Marty's story, and I want you to get it out there. If it's good, and it will be, I want you to get it out there somehow. And I said, get it out like how? And she goes, oh, on the internet or something. So six months after she passed, I, it took that long to you know, deal with that. And You were an executor of her estate? That's right. She entrusted you with everything. With everything. And then so I sat with the pot of tea one day and I read this thing that said, I, Marty, small e, big Y, big E. Big E, yeah. On a box. I t opened it up and it was very carefully with the post-its and photographs and poems attached to the script. And so I had to take the whole thing out very carefully without things falling out because I was like, this somebody put a lot of attention into this. And I read it and it was his life story up until he was about to go to, he says, I'm going off now to have fun as a pirate, because it's a pirate movie. And please stay tuned for the very least day, because I love you. And that's how it ends. And he died. And it's his life story up to that point. And it's, it's riveting. There's some very profound moments in it. Very profound. He was a very deep thinker, and he was a very big lover of the art. So he loved jazz, and he loved, but from a very early age, he knew that he wanted to be a performer, and he was very inspired by Buster Keaton, um, who was a silent movie star. And the, the thing about the book that was so profound for me that it literally took me a while, I put it down and I went, I knew that I loved it. I didn't know all that stuff about him, even as well as I knew her. She was kind of closed in terms of, you could see the sense of sadness coming over her when she would mention, like she would say funny antidotes and funny stories about when such and such and Robert De Niro came by the house and she would tell you this funny story about Marty and Robert De Niro. But 
I did dig a deep a little bit with her and his relationship, but she felt that she didn't want to read this book because if there was anything in there, not about affairs, not about drugs, not about anything else, that she didn't know she would feel betrayed. And I totally mm. understood that. And so when I read it, I'd happened to be friends with Eric Idle, who was very good friends from Monty Python, who was very good friends with Marty. And I read it, and Marty, Eric lives up the street from me. I brought him the script and said, read this. And it wasn't a script. It, was, it looked like a script, but it was a typed story. And Eric, who was about to turn 70, would have been a few years younger than Marty, stayed up all night reading it. It had a profound influence on him. He was just like, this guy was my hero. This was all our heroes. We have to get this book out. This has to be a book. And I went, okay, so how do we do that? And he goes, we'll find a publisher. And immediately we found a publisher who secured and said, every, note, every name, every word, everything stays the same. There's no correction. There's no excuse to say it was never edited. It goes out. And so then it was released in, um, just before Christmas in Britain and immediately became a bestseller, 33 years after he died. And the ironic thing about the whole thing, and for the people living in Nebraska and Utah and that want to do their own thing, please do your own thing. Because this guy yeah. and his wife were the great, a great love story. And he wrote poems for her. And he wrote this book, which is the second half of it, is a love story about his relationship. And she never got to read that. Because she didn't, you know, and, and, and the poems are, are, are beautiful. You know, they're silly. And they're beautiful. And his love for her is so profound that I think that if she had read that, it would have been a very cathartic and healing process for her. But she went on with the closed, I can't, I shan't, I won't. And so this book is a lesson of like at 48 years of age. At the end of it, he's, he's been through the LA, he's been through the, the studio system and, and the beatdowns of the business of Los Angeles. And he is so optimistic and so fervent about like, I know what I need to do and I'm going to do it. And then he dies. Mm. So if you get, mm. so you don't have to know anything about Marty Feldman, about, you know, and the great thing is that, um, I, f I think, you know, uh, Tyson Cornell, do you know Tyson from, um, used to work at BookSoup, but has a great imprint called Rare Bird Literature. Mm. Um, he, kn he knows you and he knows your work too, but he's putting the book out. It's coming out the first week of May here and it's the deluxe version of it because there's so many photographs that Marty wanted to be in it. And, and all the, all the text is the same as the English version, the, Amer the American version. There's a lot more photographs in there because in England they have this due diligence thing that if they can't find who took that photograph, they're not printing it. Oh, my word. In America, you have to go, that person's not around. Yeah. This photograph was taken 62 years ago. Right. And so, so I'm really happy that the book that's coming out is the deluxe version of that. And I set up an, a website called imarty.com and I've put up all his work. Oh, wow. All his film clips, all his interviews. Um, there's more coming up, but like him on the Johnny Carson show, him on so fascinating, and his writing is is really and a br yeah. brilliant mind, and I yeah. can see why when I talk to John Cleese, when I talk to different people, that were just like, oh no no no, this guy was what Charlie Parker was to sax players, right right, and that's what I feel about him is for the people who love British comedy, they love Monty Python, they love th you read him and you're like, oh this is it traces back right. To, to like and he never he, boasts he, he but he talks about the lineage of the people before him so if you're into any kind of comedy um there's a great history in there so it's like yeah. in america there was you know before george carlin well there was the flip wilson show there, you know all these different things yeah and it's much more recent but marty goes through the music hall thing which i thought was fascinating in the book the first parts of the book where he was struggled kind of a vaudeville kind of act 
because there was no real... That's where I'm at. I'm in there Okay, somewhere. so there was no real venue of, like, what do we do? But it's his first sexual experiences. It's his first encounters yeah. with these creepy people in business. And, and it's... Um, Fascinating. It's, yeah, I didn't see any of it and coming. And when I read it, I was like, wow, am I glad I found this. And this is your life. This is the kind of thing that comes your way. Those are co- some of the kind of things that come my way. Um, uh, and, and as a result of doing this, uh, the publisher in England asked me if I had any stories of my own. And I said, you want me to do a tell-all about Largo? about all that. And I thought it would be really funny to do a book. It's not fair, but I would have done a book, Confessions of a Hollywood Club Owner, and talk about... <laughs> and then Rob and Kristen and I went to Swingers. And there's no drugs, there's no sex, and there's no rock and roll. It's just the most mundane, you know... Oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> the, the tell-all. And, but the tell-all is that, yeah, we sat and we, had to, we talked to the people that came to the show, and it was great. It would be like what really goes on, and it would yeah. be like us having a conversation about our kids. Yeah, exactly. Or, or standing in the alley with Pete. Or how much Val we hated night. that TV show thing that was on last night that we had high hopes for. <laughs> yeah, You know, things like Just, that. But, but, so, but anyway, as a result, I'm telling stories of... Um, of growing up in Belfast and the moving and stuff like this. So I have a series of short stories that I'm, I'm plowing through and getting there. So that's I love the it. Okay. Of thing. Stay tuned. I'm so glad you came to the back house. Yeah. Is that longer than Pete Holmes? No. <laughs> How many minutes? Tell me the minutes. 45. Be... It's great. That's where we want to be, it's right? perfect. Uh, listeners, perfect. thank you for your time. And I love, uh, I just am so inspired when I see somebody who who is thriving and enjoys their life, first off, I'm always inspired. Your love for your wife and your kids when we yeah. first started talking. Uh-huh. I'm always inspired by somebody who gets all that, understands how it all works. Right. That you give your best to the people closest to you. Right. And then from there, you try to do some good in the world. Yeah. The funny thing is that I, the, what I, the conundrum that I have is that we're all so busy that I take stock of that, like, of like Pete's going to be gone for three months. I really want Rob and Kristen to meet Renee and the kids and that, those little, that little girl and my little girl. Yeah. And geography, there's no excuse for it. Yeah, right. But Largo becomes very, very busy in terms of we're homeschooling the kids. So during the daytime, I have to give it as much attention as possible. And then most nights I'm working. But I can take off most nights. I can dodge out and, and hang out with you and Pete tonight. I can do stuff like that. But the thing that I promised the performers that when they played at Largo, it, I, it wasn't anything in writing. But I'll be there. I'll make sure that the show clicks on time. We'll make sure that at the end of it, we had a good time and stuff like that. So I like to do that. And even for people who I don't know that well, like we have Graham Nash coming tonight and showing his life work of photographs. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Mm-hmm. And amazing. he's an amazing photographer. And Henry Diltz, who's another legendary photo- photographer, they're going to discuss their life work tonight. And so they could have done it in a much bigger venue, but they wanted to do it at Largo. And I was like, wow, that's great. You know, so, yeah. so there are shows that I want to be there for, and there's regular shows and, and stuff. And... um. But I want to try, that's the next phase, is I want to do it in a, a bigger room, not too big, with the same, but actually more production things. And so that when Rob Bell goes, you know what would be really cool? If a screen... Yes, I'm already... Just came down I'm and showed people something and then just fucked off, just went back to where it was. <laughs> <laughs> so the next, the next house has that. I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. It's, yes. It's, I, I, I love, you're so inspiring. Yeah, thank you. You too. And I mean, that's why I'm here. There's so much about how you got to where you are now that there's so many lessons and truths in there that I think are so much about what it means to be alive and here in the world. So I think the, the important thing that I find that 
looking at successful people that do what they're doing, and certainly Largo is a success, but is to find the balance in your life, the thing that fuels you, whether it's family or whatever it is. But you have to try. You just have to go. You just have to do it, get out there and do it, and it'll be fine, I think. Why I would know. we not stop right I know. there? There it is. Grace and peace, everybody. <laughs> Thank you, Flanny. Of course. <laughs> yes, oh, my word. We almost ended. <laughs> on a great note. I, at the beginning, said you have to tell the bow story. Yes. We have to end with a bow story. Right. So. So, Bo Burnham is a beautiful man and a, a young comedian. Very funny. Very, very funny. And most listeners will probably know him. And he has specials on TV. And um, he was working at a show at Largo, uh, quite a regular thing where he was building for a tour. And he was doing a monthly show and popping up on other people's shows and doing <laughs> sets. And one of the parts of his show was he, and he has a young audience, young girls, mostly like, you know, 15 to 20. And Largo's all ages, so it's great. And some of them come with their parents, some of them come in groups, the parents drop them off. And it's this is for maybe three or four years ago. So uh, Bo went out and did his act and he had a few guests. But during the daytime, Michael, who tells everyone to turn off their cell phones, got a call from some business people saying, Justin Bieber is coming to Largo to see Bo Burnham. He saw him on YouTube. He doesn't know him. He wants to come. <laughs> and so, but we, he's got a lot of attention around right now. So we need security and blah, blah, blah. Michael said, don't worry about it. Drop him off like all the other parents do. And so... <laughs> He arrived. By the way, if you call ahead and say we don't want to make a big deal about it, you've just called ahead and made a big deal about it. Yes. For the record. Yes. And Michael had to tell him that two nights before Barbara Streisand pulled up with her husband, they had purchased tickets and walked into the bar, had a drink, walked into the theater, had a thing. All the gays went gaga, but never went near her. And she left and had a great experience. And so Michael said, listen, Barbara was just here. And they tried to tell Michael, no, 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 but this is Justin Bieber. And Michael's like, okay, right, okay. So anyway, they drop, they drop Justin off with his girlfriend, Selena Gomez, who was dressed like she was going to the Oscars. She had a ball, ball gown on. And her mother, not Justin's mother, her mother. And they come in, and every reflection of a picture or a mirror that was between the front door and the theater, Justin found it and tossed his hair and looked at himself. And she was beautiful. And they went in and they sat down. So before the show, as I always do, I checked in with Bo, I checked in with everybody, and I said, everything good? You all right? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. How does it look out there? I said, it's a great audience. It's full, and it's all your people. And he never mentioned anything about Justin Bieber to me, so I never mentioned anything to him. But it was like, that's seismic in the room, you know, whatever. And I wanted to say to him, listen, if there's a strange thing going on, it's because he's out there. Because, you know, young girls will turn around and go, oh, you know. So, But I didn't say anything. And his manager was the one that got, a, got him in contact with Michael, the manager. So it's important to know that the manager knew that Justin Bieber was coming. So I didn't have any heads up. So Bo goes on stage and he has a joke about young girls being manipulated and with the songs that go, like especially Usher, that go, la, 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 take care of yourself. Don't listen to anybody. Meanwhile, he's manipulating you. Yes. He'd been doing that for the first three months in a row. And, and on Usher this, is the example. Usher is the example. And on this particular night, he decides to say, Girls, Justin Bieber is no good. <laughs> He's a motherfucker. He's evil. And everybody in the room goes, Justin's in on this. This is grit. Bo takes it to levels that I've never... He starts cursing. He starts saying things. And 
and it just gets really nasty about like how sick he is of these people manipulating people, manipulating young girls in particular, and then does the song to prove it. And and then everyone Wait, claps does the song mean like he sings? He r- sings not a Justin song, but like an Usher song that Justin may have sang on. And he goes, and then he's telling you this. But meanwhile, you know what this guy's really about? This is what this guy's really about. And gets on a tangent. And it's all really funny, but then it gets really serious and dark. And he goes, how do I get myself out of this fucking hole? And so then he goes into an old bit and then does the thing. So after the show, Michael, who was in the office doing paperwork and stuff, hadn't heard any of that. And the two SAS guys who were protecting Justin, who were standing in the courtyard, like one outside the door, one outside the front. Justin comes running out with his mom, with her, her, his, his girlfriend and her mom. And Michael says, do you guys want to say hi to Bo? And they were like, oh, no, we don't need to say hi to Bo. And they left. And I went backstage and Bo was like, I think that went really good. The crowd was great, right? The crowd was great. And I went, yeah, do you want to see anybody? And he goes, no. I said, Justin Bieber? And he goes, I really went for him tonight. I don't know where that came from. And I said, Bo, Justin was here tonight in the audience. And that's what, that's what prompted that, right? And he goes, you're fucking with me. I said, no, I'm not fucking with you. Justin was here with Selena Gomez and her mom. And you took him to the, to the shed. To the shed, said. exactly. And he is such a nice guy, Bo, that he was horrified. And he goes, how did you not tell me and I said because your manager arranged it I thought you knew and I didn't want to say anything before to, you know and he was like he didn't blame me or anything like that but he's like blaming himself so the next day he booked a, a performance on Conan O'Brien and went on Conan O'Brien to apologize to Justin Bieber to say that what I said was right but I didn't want to make you embarrassed in the room and 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 then got hate mail like you wouldn't believe because he only made the matter worse because only the people in the room knew about this. When right. the Bieber fanatics got on it, like, what did you say about him? So they don't even know what he said. They just know he said something bad, so they're going to defend him. Yeah. So it took Bo a while to get out of the shed after that. That is an um... Yeah. That, I don't even know say about it's that It's that story. small world that you just don't know. Like, in the yeah. same sense that many, many years before, Amy Mann thought her career was just over. This is the girl that we talked about, the sang Voices Carry from Till Tuesday. And she sang a song called Save Me. And Paul Thomas Anderson, the director, was starting to write a movie called Magnolia and said, I'm going to have her be the musician to do all of that. And then a year later, she's nominated for an Oscar. Guess who she lost to? Phil Collins. (laughs) 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 That's an inside thing, but yeah. And we'll end there. There it is. Thank you for telling the Bo story. You are welcome. It just wraps it all up perfectly. All right, cool. (laughs) 